Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part one of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Bruce Reynolds, Gordon Goody, and the Great British Train Robbery of 1963. Now let's get started with our story about the Great Train Robbery. On August 7, 1963, at 6.50 p.m., a TPO train left Glasgow's Central Station, bound for London's Euston Station, with an arrival time of 4 o'clock in the morning. TPO stood for Traveling Post Office, a special 12-car column that contained over 70 postal employees, some who picked up and dropped off mail along the route, while others sorted and organized material during the journey. The train routinely stopped at seven stations. At other locations, mailbags were retrieved from specially designed raised pegs. The train was conveyed by a typical diesel-electric locomotive. The second car directly behind it was classified as the HVP Coach, an acronym for high-value packages. These packages included large deliveries of cash, as well as registered mail, contained in standard white mail bags. On a typical mail run, the HVP Coach carried almost 300,000 pounds, or 6.3 million pounds today. But as the previous weekend was a bank holiday, the coach was crammed with banknotes totaling 2,595,996 pounds and 10 shillings. These bills were either surplus money heading from regional banking locations to central London bank headquarters or worn currency designated for public removal and destruction. Adjusted for inflation, these 1963 pounds are currently worth approximately 45 million pounds today, an equivalent to about 56 million 2024 dollars. At 12 minutes after midnight, two men boarded the train at the town of Crewe. 57-year-old engineer Jack Mills and his junior co-worker, 27-year-old fireman David Whitby. Employees of British Railways, Mills had driven locomotives for over 20 years, and Whitby had worked on trains since the age of 16. As the TPO pulled into the deserted train depot, it was easily recognizable painted red with bright lettering and regal design, announcing it as the Royal Mail. Despite the valuable cargo, there was no special security on the train. Only a British Railways employee, situated in the last carriage, officially identified as a guard. Most likely because of the prestigious designation of the train as a literal agency of the British Crown, it was felt to be immune from any criminal danger. In fact, for over 125 years, no TPO train had ever been robbed. 
Additionally, once the train pulled out of a station, there was no way for anyone on board to contact either railway authorities or law enforcement. In fact, other than walking from one car to another, there was no mechanism for postal workers on board to communicate with other employees elsewhere on the train. In their cab, Mills and Whitby were completely cut off from the carriages behind them, having no ability either via radio or telephone to speak externally with anyone. Unbeknownst to the occupants of this August 7th traveling post office, their centuries-old immunity was about to expire. As the TPO barreled toward London, 15 men were beginning their final steps in intercepting the train at a spot between the towns of Leighton Buzzard and Cheddington. They were fully aware of the massive amount of cash on board, tipped off by a relative of a railroad worker who has never been officially identified. For almost a year after receiving this information, three men, Bruce Reynolds, Ronald Buster Edwards, and Gordon Goody, meticulously planned a Royal Mail Train robbery and recruited various associates to help with the caper. In 1962, these career criminals had already successfully robbed a BOAC airport payroll worth 62,000 pounds. For the train heist, they recruited an expert who had successfully halted and robbed trains in southern England, a garage owner and car thief who provided the necessary vehicles. Through a solicitor, purchased a remote farmhouse where the gang assembled before the crime and would hide out afterward, and even retained a prospective train driver in the event that the Royal Mail engineer refused to cooperate. At 12.30 a.m., at their hideout known as Leather Slade Farm near the village of Oakley in the county of Buckinghamshire, Bruce Reynolds assigned numbers to all 16 men who would participate in the robbery, 15 individuals who would actually storm the train as well as the potential driver. The 16 men that entered the three vehicles that made up their convoy, a Series 2 Land Rover, followed by an Austin truck with a Series 1 Land Rover bringing up the rear. The vehicles had been repainted to give them a military appearance, all of the robbers dressed in soldierly-looking uniforms. If they were stopped by any curious law enforcement en route, their explanation would be that they were part of an Army exercise. Typically, Bruce Reynolds had donned the uniform of an Army major, although a petty criminal and burglar first arrested at the age of 17, Reynolds had always aspired to masterminding much larger criminal enterprises. He routinely wore suits and apparel purchased along London's fashionable Saville Row, ate in upscale, high-profile dining establishments, and drove an Aston Martin sports car. Well-dressed, with chiseled good looks and sporting black horn-rimmed eyeglasses, Reynolds was a trend-setting character right out of the British crime and espionage thrillers that came to dominate the 60s and early 70s. Reynolds got into the first vehicle, Joining him was Roger Cordry, 42 years old. Cordry was the individual charged with implementing the process that would bring the train to a halt. Although not particularly technical, Cordry's methods were responsible for six successful train heists on Britain's South Coast Line. Cordry was also the head of a criminal gang known as the South Coast Raiders, individuals that he insisted be included in the robbery 
as a condition of his involvement. These men were also career criminals providing the muscle necessary to intimidate or even assault any train employees who might resist the robbery. As the convoy deliberately made its way to its destination, Gordon Goody sat quietly in the third vehicle with two other conspirators. There was nothing to do now but relax and enjoy the ride. It was 1.30 a.m. when the three vehicles reached their destination, a single lane that led under a railroad bridge designated as Number 127, also known locally as the Bridego Bridge. The drivers parked their vehicles nearby on the side of the road, the truck closest to the embankment that led about 20 feet up to the tracks. All of the men then put on dark coveralls to approximate the appearance of a railroad employee. Cordry and Roy James quickly ascended the incline and cut the overhead telephone wire. Gordon Goody supervised placing a white sheet at the exact spot where the train would be halted and the removal of the money should begin, as close to the truck as possible. The plan actually called for tampering with two signals located about 1,100 yards north at a location known as Sears Crossing. Normally green, Cordry's plan called for covering these lights with a black glove and placing battery-powered amber and red lights in their place. Upon slowing down at the amber light and seeing the red light, the engineer would have no choice but to stop and investigate. Most likely, he would send his fireman up the track to determine if the red light was a legitimate concern or merely a signal malfunction. The plan called for the firemen to be neutralized outside of the cab and for the robbers to enter the locomotive forcibly if necessary. The locomotive and the HVP car and another carriage would then be uncoupled from the rest of the train and driven up the track by the robber's driver to the Bridego Bridge. Although the HVP car did have doors that could be locked from the inside, it also had windows big enough to allow entry once smashed while the assailants attempted to also bash their way through the entrance door. Once inside, the postal employees were to be subdued and the money unloaded and tossed down the embankment via a bucket brigade into the back of the truck. The uncoupling was meant to occur as quickly as possible, hopefully with most of the postal employees unaware of this decoupling and only understanding that the train was inexplicably stopped. The longer that this confusion persisted, the longer it would be before anyone on the train could even attempt to sound the alarm. Although urban legend and even subsequent accounts written by the robbers themselves described an operation that went off without a hitch, there were several fundamental mistakes and incidents that might have jeopardized the entire robbery. Even before the anticipated halting of the train at Sears Crossing at 2.45 a.m., a telephone operator at Leighton Buzzard had informed an engineer at the General Post Office of a line outage problem with the telephone wire that unbeknownst to them was the result of being cut by the criminals. Any prompt investigation of this outage might have unraveled the plan during its implementation. Improperly tampering with the signal lights also caused another inadvertent situation that could have been fatal to the plan. Roger Cordry could not be in two places at once when it was time to obscure the two green lights with amber and red illumination. Therefore, he carefully instructed another of the train robbers, John Daly, in the procedure necessary 
to obscure the green light and activate the amber light via an attached battery and crocodile clips. The plan called for the switch to be made when Reynolds notified them both by walkie-talkie that the mail train was approaching. Cordry successfully obscured his green light using this method, but inexplicably, Mayer, instead of covering his green light signal bulb with a black glove, chose to unscrew it instead. The loose bulb was subsequently found on the ground by investigators. What Mayer did not understand, and what Cordry failed to tell him, was that removing the bulb would set off an alarm bell at the Leighton Buzzard train station. Following appropriate procedure, the signalman at the station informed the technician on duty in charge of investigating such a fault at the location of the outage at Sears Crossing. Had this technician, Frank Mead, informed of the situation at 3 a.m., promptly investigated the reason for the alarm, the robbery again might have had a very different outcome. There was a third issue that the robbers also had not taken into account. Mills did see the amber and then red lights and brought the train to a halt. But because the track in this particular location was flat and unobstructed for a considerable distance, green signal lights could be clearly observed nearby strongly indicating to Mills and Whitby that the amber and red lights were some insignificant malfunction. Nevertheless, procedure dictated that the firemen use a telephone situated near the base of the red signal to contact a signalman and to determine if there was a significant problem. Whitby got out of the locomotive cab, climbed down onto the tracks, and headed to the phone, only to discover that the phone wires had been cut. Still nonchalant and suspecting nothing, he headed back in the direction of the locomotive, intent on conferring with Mills. On the way, he observed one of the robbers already situated between the second and third railroad carriage. The fireman thought he was an on-site railway worker associated with addressing the signal malfunction and yelled up to Mills as he passed the open door of the locomotive that he would inquire of the worker as to the problem. As he got closer, he asked the man, What's up, mate? The man gestured to the side of the track and told Whitby to come forward, as if the worker needed to show him whatever was wrong. When the fireman got within arm's reach, this individual, who was actually one of the robbers, grabbed him and shoved him down the embankment into the grasp of two other men who quickly subdued him. One brandished a blackjack and menacingly whispered, If you shout, I'll kill you. Whitby cowered in fear and offered no resistance. Completely oblivious, Mills remained seated in the locomotive and hearing someone climbing up the locomotive's iron stair presumed it was Whitby. Instead, it was Buster Edwards, dressed in coveralls and a green military-style balaclava, menacing the engineer with a two-foot iron pipe wrapped in cloth. Mills responded by spontaneously attempting to push the assailant out of the cab, and having leverage in the upper hand, came very close to doing so. Unfortunately, other robbers successfully climbed into the cab from the other side of the train and quickly subdued Mills. How exactly that happened remains controversial, as Mills suffered serious head wounds, and such violence was greatly frowned upon in British society, especially when inflicted by a criminal upon a civilian in the course of merely doing his job. While several individuals have been identified as the culprit in injuring the engineer, Mills himself said he actually suffered his most serious injury 
when he was pushed and fell against some of the hard metal protrusions in the interior of the cab. Bleeding, Mills was then forced to the rear of the cab where Whitby was also deposited, additional men having dragged the firemen up the embankment and back into the train. The next step consisted of involving the individual that Bruce Reynolds recruited to drive the train, Reynolds presuming correctly that the engineer might refuse or not be in any shape to do so. Only six weeks earlier, Reynolds had been discussing a loan of 500 pounds requested by a good friend he had met in prison, Ronnie Biggs. Biggs had spent much of the 50s in jail, but had gotten married, vowed to go straight, and was actually making a go of it as a building contractor. He needed the money to purchase the home he currently rented and where he lived with his family. During this conversation, he casually mentioned that he was refurbishing the house of a recently retired train engineer, Instead of a loan, Reynolds offered Biggs a sizable amount of money if he could get the driver involved, and the man eventually agreed. This man, much older than any of his train robber confederates, was known among the group as Pop. As Biggs and Pop entered the crowded cab and the latter individual sat down in the engineer's seat, it was now showtime. But despite the elderly gent's best efforts, nothing happened. Unfortunately, Pop was dealing with two fundamental problems. The first resulted from two of the robbers, Roy James and Jimmy White, uncoupling the second carriage from the rest of the train without properly shutting closed a valve that controlled air pressure for the train's brakes. But even if this problem was rectified, it became obvious that the substitute driver was way out of his element with this type of long-haul locomotive, which he had never driven before instead having dealt with much less sophisticated vehicles on shorter routes in southern England. With nine men in the cab getting more anxious by the second, the train going nowhere, millions of pounds hanging in the balance, and valuable time slipping away in the face of a 30-minute deadline imposed by Bruce Reynolds, who was observing from one of the Land Rovers parked on nearby Route B-488, the volatile temper of Gordon Goody suddenly interjected itself into the stalled process. Unlike Reynolds, who considered himself a gentleman and a sophisticate, Goody was more inclined to impulsively incorporate violence into his behavior. His first prison term earned at the age of 17 when he beat and robbed a man merely because he believed he was a homosexual. Enraged at the lack of progress, the formidable Goody suddenly screamed for the removal of Pop, telling some of the other conspirators to drag the real engineer back into the cab. With a makeshift bandage wrapped around his head, Mills staggered back to the engineer's seat and got busy under threat of another beating, the engine struggling as a result of the open-air pressure valve. Suddenly, Jimmy White realized the problem and hurriedly raced back to the separated coach and shut the valve. Within seconds, the train started to pick up speed, White just barely able to jump on the rear of the locomotive as it rumbled towards the Bridego Bridge. Reynolds, along with Daly and the Range Rover, were delighted to finally see the locomotive begin to head south and arrived at the rendezvous point in time to scurry up the embankment and stop the now uncoupled train in the precisely appropriate spot. But the robbers still were faced with another difficult task, penetrating the now locked high-value packages car. Six men considered the strongest and most intimidating of the group were designated to lead this assault, including Gordon Goody, 
James Hussey, so powerful looking he was known as Big Jim, close associate of Bruce Reynolds and violent hoodlum Charlie Wilson, Buster Edwards, and another formidable looking member of the South Coast Raiders, Tommy Wisby. Inside the HVP car, five postal employees wondered why the train was stopped again and how long they would be delayed. They did not have a very long wait. Charlie Wilson took an axe handle and smashed out one of the coach windows, quickly hoisting himself in through the opening. Another window was quickly shattered, the door broken down, and within seconds after the attack began, the assault team, armed with various blunt instruments and frighteningly masked with balaclavas, had penetrated the high-value package's sanctuary. The postal workers were told to get on the floor of the coach and to close their eyes, several blows providing motivation. Very quickly after that, the bucket brigade was formed with most of the 15 quickly beginning the process of getting 128 mailbags off of the train and into the back of the truck, the bags weighing two and a half tons in total. Two men were not participating in the human removal chain, Pop, the now-failed engineer substitute, and Ronnie Biggs, both sitting in one of the Land Rovers. Biggs was not only dejected, he was concerned about how some of the robbers would react, he being the man who initially vouched for Pop, and Reynolds, the only participant that Biggs really knew in any case. Neither man in the automobile had much time for introspection. As the truck rapidly filled up, Reynolds called out the time, 3.30 a.m., 30 minutes after the train was first halted. According to the agreed-upon plan, it was time to leave. Despite Charlie Wilson yelling out that only a few bags remained, the group quickly stopped the retrieval process and headed to the vehicles. Several members of the assault team then retrieved the still-bleeding Mills and Whitby, now handcuffed, and shoved the two men down into the HVP, firmly telling them not to move or contact anyone for 30 minutes. Informed that the train would still be observed after they left, the victims were also told that they would be harmed further if they contacted anyone before this time limit expired. With that, and all of the criminals seated in their assigned spots, the procession of vehicles slowly began to make its way back to the farm. Despite some modest blunders, some that they were not even aware that they had committed, the robbers had to be elated. They had been able to remove all but seven of the mailbags, enough money stolen to guarantee life-changing shares to each participant. They again kept off main roads, the early morning backcountry routes still completely dark and deserted. Both Land Rovers contained high-frequency radio receivers that would broadcast any police updates. It was approximately 4.30 a.m., when the three vehicles safely turned into the secluded gravel driveway of Leather Slade Farm. One more task remained, the group again queuing up and quickly beginning to unload the mailbags into the house, the bags quickly filling one room, the rest stacked against the walls of one of the hallways. Some of the men began to remove the stacks of banknotes from the mailbags while Goody checked for any electronic devices attached to the sacks, finding nothing. Reynolds, suddenly exhausted and still wearing his major's uniform, told Edwards and Goody to keep an eye on things and went upstairs to get some sleep. After the robbers departed from the vicinity of Bridego Bridge, the victims on the floor of the HVP initially heeded the warning to remain still. 
at Sears Crossing, all of the postal workers in the detached rear of the TPO were still completely unaware of the robbery, and many had no idea that the front three cars were now detached and hundreds of yards up the track. Although assigned British Railways guard Tom Miller later claimed that he walked the approximate half mile to the locomotive at Bridego Bridge and discovered the locomotive and the robbery victims, most likely it was two postal workers, Thomas Kett and Leslie Penn, who first warily crept out of the HVP carriage and, sensing nobody still there, began walking north towards Sears Crossing. Miller's first concern before he had any idea as to why the locomotive had uncoupled, would be to lay safety detonators behind the halted carriages at Sears Crossing. These devices would explode as a train ran over them, warning any subsequent train of a delay up ahead. Since procedure called for these detonators to be placed on the tracks in a sequence leading as far back as a mile behind the halted TPO, it was quite unlikely that Miller, A 61-year-old would have been able to handle this procedure and then turn around and walk all the way to the Bridego Bridge. Such minor discrepancies might seem trivial, but this was the first of many inaccuracies, continually repeated by both law enforcement and the robbers themselves that have greatly confused what actually happened during the robbery and its aftermath. Although Kett and Penn did encounter Miller while the guard was on his way south, that was shortly before they reached Sears Crossing. There they were helped on board the front of the third railway car, subsequently informing the other postal workers gathered there of the robbery. Two of these workers immediately volunteered to set off to a nearby cottage that was visible near the tracks. Although noble, this effort proved futile, As the cottage's phone was out, the two men were miles from any police station, and by the time one of them arrived at the Linslade outpost, the robbery was already officially reported. Miller was able to stop a slower-moving local train and convince the engineer to loan him his fireman, who could drive the TPO locomotive and two attached rail cars south to the nearest rail stop at Cheddington. Mills and Whitby were still handcuffed, and Mills was probably in no shape to get the train moving. Miller also gave no thought to the idea that moving the train was disturbing an active crime scene and might even obliterate important evidence. This was not a crucial mistake, but it was the first of many that prevented a resolution of the crime in days rather than years. At least it got Miller in touch with the station signalman at Cheddington, who began to notify law enforcement both nationally at New Scotland Yard and locally at the Buckinghamshire Criminal Investigation Division, or CID. Detective Superintendent Malcolm Futrell, one of the most senior police officials in the region, received a phone call at home at 4.35 in the morning. By 4.45 a.m., Frank Mead, the aforementioned rail technician, was finally on the scene at Sears Crossing examining both vandalized signals and also destroying evidence. By 5 a.m., only one policeman, an inspector from Linslade, was at Sears Crossing. Law enforcement officials like Futrell headed to Aylesbury, the previously agreed-upon regional HQ, for any major cases, or to Cheddington, where the locomotive was situated. One of the first tasks facing the police at Cheddington was to get Engineer Mills to a hospital, and as the train driver was still handcuffed to Whitby, the fireman was obliged to accompany him. 
While this predicament might seem like something out of a British slapstick comedy, Mill's injuries, inventoried at the Royal Buckinghamshire Hospital, were no laughing matter. Officially five skull lacerations with one two inches long and a half inch deep. It would take hours before a hacksaw was implemented to separate the two railway workers. Mills's injuries requiring hospitalization and 14 stitches. By Thursday mid-morning, there were three law enforcement entities actively and separately mobilizing an investigation. In addition to Futrell, there was the British Transport Police working out of Cheddington Station and the General Post Office Investigation Branch in London. Although notified of the crime within minutes, a fourth entity, New Scotland Yard's official involvement, was not requested until 10.30 a.m. by the Buckinghamshire CID. By 3 o'clock Thursday afternoon, over 30 members from all four of these groups participated in a meeting at the GPO headquarters in London. Police on site, like Futrell, spent much of Thursday merely walking along the tracks and observing the various sites connected with the crime. Initially, there was no attempt in any regional or even local search for the robbers. However, media was already heavily involved. News of the theft, the leading story throughout the country, front-page news and Thursday evening papers, and the leading story on all radio stations, including the BBC. It was a midday news report monitored at Leather Slade Farm that punctured the relative serenity of the train robbers, relaxing in their hideout after spending the night sorting and counting their loot. The reality of a 2.6 million pound haul, a blissful outcome for everyone. Initially, their plan called for them to ride out any initial media hysteria and police response in their sanctuary, believing its remote location would shield them from any attention. They'd even brought substantial amounts of food, drinks, sleeping bags, silverware, even toilet tissue to facilitate weeks of evasion. Eventually, when the coast was clear, they intended to make their way back to London in the same vehicles that brought them to the farmhouse, namely their truck and the two Range Rovers. But clearly, by noon, police, either through their own investigation or tips from the public, had at least some information. One obvious source were the two railway employees, taken from the cab and told to lie down on the train track embankment. Whitby especially would have been able to at least get a glimpse of the vehicles parked nearby. So, although it was a shock to the robbers, it should not have been surprising that the midday news not only reported a theft of at least a million pounds, but also that the bandits had escaped in what was described as military-style vehicles and Reynolds, Goody, and company had no way of knowing either where that information came from and how specific it might be. On the deserted roads to and from the Bridego Bridge, had some observant resident or even one of their neighbors been able to specifically see the three-vehicle convoy or even get a license plate number? Using these three vehicles to not only return to London but also transport the money was suddenly no longer a viable option. Plan B must be utilized, except there was no plan B. In the early afternoon, while the robbers discussed the situation, Roger Cordry decided to take one of the farm's bicycles and head for Oxford, about 10 miles and 90 minutes away. Cordry agreed to contact Brian Field, the legal clerk involved with purchasing the farm, to help arrange alternate transport. 
He also agreed to call a female friend of Reynolds to get her and another individual to meet Reynolds the next day in a small town, about six miles from the farm. Also realizing that they might not have weeks for a massive cleanup of incriminating evidence, the gang also began to wipe down the house for fingerprints, burn and bury some of the clothing used in the robbery, as well as banknote wrappers and mailbags. Already it was becoming a consensus that they would be leaving sooner rather than later. This urgency proved well-founded. The next morning, most likely because of the pressure on law enforcement, not only to explain how such a crime could have even happened, but also to provide reassurances that a substantive investigation was underway. Futrell would subsequently claim in a book about the robbery investigation that law enforcement deliberately leaked any possible significant information available. Although they didn't have much, police did have the statement from the victims in the HVP that they were admonished to not move for 30 minutes. Intelligently, at least one detective deduced that the robbers may be hiding within 30 minutes of the robbery site. Luckily for the investigation, in discussing this with the media, this information was transformed into the police believing that the robbers were not only hiding within 30 miles of the robbery site, but that they, law enforcement, intended on focusing on every remote farm and residence within that 30-mile radius. Leather Slade Farm, as the robbers knew quite well, was 28 miles from the Bridego Bridge, putting their hideout within law enforcement's stated focus. Suddenly, stranded in the middle of nowhere with 2.6 million pounds of banknotes that were impossible to conceal, the reasonably intelligent process that went into the execution of the crime now became a panicked every-man-for-himself melee. Although this media gambit prompted the criminals to prematurely leave their hideout and avoid an arrest that might have again wrapped up the case in days, it did precipitate a hasty retreat that left a great deal of evidence behind. Roger Cordry was the first to make any substantive attempt to flee the leather slate hideout. By Friday morning, he was back in Oxford, purchasing a used car, a Wolseley. Upon his return, he loaded up a share of the loot, 142,000 pounds, and another Confederate, Jimmy White, and headed back to Oxford and a flat he had previously rented before the heist. After hiding Cordry's money in his rented apartment, they then bought another car, White returning to the farm in the Wolseley to pick up a robber who has never been identified and who law enforcement eventually began referring to as Mr. Number One. White then fled with Number One to London, both taking their 142,000-pound shares with them. The only other conspirator who ever explained how he fled from Leatherslade Farm was Bruce Reynolds. On Friday morning, he walked six and a half miles to the town of Tem, where after being summoned by Cordry the day before, Reynolds' friend Mary Manson and another individual showed up in a furniture van. Reynolds left them there and returned to the farm, picking up Daly and both of their shares. Returning to Tem with Daly, he had Manson drive the van back to her residence in Wimbledon, figuring that it was wise to remain separate from his cash until he could determine how precarious the situation might be back in London. Daly and Reynolds took a bus back to the capital, a cab to Manson's home where they picked up the van, and then they drove the vehicle to a rented garage, stashed their money behind some furniture, and locked the doors. 
By early Friday evening, various vehicles were arriving at Leather Slade Farm in a now very determined effort to vacate the premises as quickly as possible. Again, exactly how and when everyone abandoned the farm is unknown, but several accounts indicate that Brian Field, who first approached the robbers with the information about the cash on the train and helped through his solicitor's firm, where he was employed to acquire Leather Slade Farm, showed up at some point on Friday with enough transportation to extricate eight men, including Goody and Edwards, and two other robbers who have never been identified who came to be known as Mr. Number 2 and Mr. Number 3. At some point on Friday, possibly because he felt responsible for them, Reynolds is also believed to have returned with Daly in two separate cars to rescue Biggs and Pop, the train driver. In any case, by midnight on Friday, less than 48 hours after the robbery, Leather Slade Farm was abandoned. Brian Field subsequently put his eight now fugitive gang members up at his suburban house. He had little choice, probably never believing that the farm would ever be located and understanding that the arrest of any of the robbers, especially at the farm, would have led law enforcement directly to him. All day, Saturday, wives, girlfriends, or acquaintances arrived at Field's home, and one by one, the robbers and their loot headed to various spots throughout metropolitan London or southern England. Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about the Great Train Robbery. Information for this podcast came from the books The Great Train Robbery, Crime of the Century by Nick Russell Pavier and Stuart Richards and The Great Train Robbery, 50th Anniversary by Bruce Reynolds and Ronnie Biggs. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People. Follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Subscribe to my YouTube page at Noblesse Oblige, and please tell a friend about Bite-Sized Biographies. (laughs) ¶¶